Well, good morning, church family. And it's so good to be with y'all. It's a great, beautiful morning, getting closer to some of my favorite time of year, getting to celebrate Easter next week, and um, of course, some things kicking off for our church family. I do want to encourage you to be part of uh, that uh, Stations of the Cross that we're doing starting Thursday night at 6. Uh, we'll have somebody up here, um, and we will have um, your, your chance to go through our fellowship hall with 12 different stations of prayer, walking through the final hours of Jesus' life from uh, his temptation to his betrayal, and then, of course, to his death and his burial and his resurrection. And so if you've never had an opportunity to do that, or if you've never, you don't even know what it's like, just come try it out. It'd take anywhere between probably 30 minutes and an hour to walk through it uh, quietly and, um, and just prayerfully as you spend time in Scripture, spend time focusing on uh, what God has done for you and your relationship with Him. And I encourage uh, people, probably, I think some of our children could go through that, probably about first, second grade up, if they're, and you guys be the own discerners of that, but our teens especially, uh, something very special you would, it, I encourage you to be part of, and our adults as well, but uh, we're glad to have you. You know, Cody, I don't, I don't know what that bread's made out of, we hope it is bread, um, praying over the styrofoam, I, I started to laugh when you said that, it's kind of, I think we have, I think we have, um, uh, a lot of experience with praying things into existence that are not. Uh, how many times has have we prayed in, in our in our tradition in the Church of the Christ that Lord, you would bless this meal to the nourishment of our body when we're eating a bag of Cheetos, as if that's nourishing. You know, we're like, Lord, please change this Cheeto into a carrot. You know, as it digests into my body. And so, anyway, there may be a connection there. But when we commune, our focus is is of course on the elements, but the elements are about essence and. We sometimes get so distracted by the pieces of communions that we forget the presence that is with us in communion. And that is what we're focused on. There is a true and better presence with us as we gather. There's a true and better presence as we open his word. There's a true and better presence as we gather in the name of Jesus. And that is the very presence of God. And we're thankful for that this morning. So I'm excited to be entering the couple, final couple weeks here of of our series that we kicked off the year. If you can imagine, we've already been now the last month of our first quarter of the 2021. We've been in this Living the Way of Jesus uh, series now for eight weeks. We've got a couple more to go that'll happen uh, in April. But as we enter this final few weeks, we've been centering around the idea and the hope that if the church is actually going to be the hope on earth, like we just sang then we have to be the disciples that Jesus called us to be. And so we've been centering around these three ideas. The disciples do three things. Say them with me. Disciples be like Jesus, they become like Jesus, and they do what Jesus did. Discipleship, church family, is a whole time, a whole life endeavor. Christianity is no part-time hobby. It's not something that you hit or miss or take when you want or cafeteria it up and take what you need for the moment. Just as all of us have been called by Jesus, then all of us wake up every morning, whether we're a teacher or a coach or whether we work in the oil field or whether we're a dad or a mom or whether we're a student, a teenager, whether we're a grandparent, whether we're uh, whatever you say with your life, we wake up as disciples and the one question that matters, the one thought, the one direction for our life is, how can I be like Jesus today? He used to have a preacher friend that on his door, and he didn't mean this arrogantly, 
On his door, before he opened his office door every morning, was a sign that said, be the most Christ-like person you meet today. And I loved that sign. Because it was a reminder of what we're all supposed to be. Be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. This is why I really can't stop thinking about a story that you all have heard, but I'm going to tell again. It was about our friend that we love and our men have really fallen in love with, Mitch Wilburn. In this story, in, the, in this time, was a few months ago, uh, back in late October. And Mitch had just come off his first round of several days on the ventilator after having COVID. Um, he was having a really hard time. Of course, he had been here with us early in October, October 3rd and 4th, for our men's conference. He got COVID after that, and then it went just south with his health concerns, and he was on the vent. They brought him off the vent. And I will remember... Uh, Two things. I remember on a Friday night being so excited that he was off the vent because we had all learned by that time the statistics, you know. We've learned so much about this disease. We've have, we could probably run off and, and I'll, I'll be able to take off in, in a whole kind of list of statistics. But the one that I had heard that stuck in my mind with Mitch was that 70% of people who contract COVID and get put on a ventilator never get off the ventilator. They never make it. And so Mitch had been the exception to that rule. And so I remember on a Friday night in Childress at a football game just being so excited that Mitch was off the vent. But then just 48 hours later on a Sunday, he had texted and said, please have your church family praying for me. Things are going bad. He didn't know what was going on. In fact, he didn't know for weeks later, but he was going to have to be put back on the ventilator. And so his chances of making it a second time on the ventilator were even more grim than the first. But in the hours reaching up and leading up to Mitch being put on the vent for the second time, I'll never forget this. He got a little bit of time to FaceTime. He got a little bit of time to talk to family and friends, and he made several phone calls on his iPad. But then when he was FaceTiming with his wife, Shannon, she asked him, Mitch, a lot of people are going to ask, they're going to text me and they're going to ask, what can we pray about for you specifically? Man, there were so many things Mitch could have said in that moment. He was fearful. In fact, talking with Mitch, he was, uh, he was ready to die. Maybe not in a courageous, Christ-like way. He was just tired. His body was shutting down and his mind was ready to give up. But in that moment... He said, I want you to ask people to pray for two things. And I'll never forget these two prayer requests. He said, Shannon, have them pray that I'll be faithful to the call of Jesus Christ as a disciple. And second, have them pray that somehow I can reach people for Jesus in this hospital. Could have prayed for a lot of things, but I'll never forget that. Because Mitch's two requests there are the essence of what it means to live the way of Jesus. That's a disciple, guys. He had everything in his mind, despite everything going on, focused on Jesus. And today I want to look at some tough passages, some words that Jesus says that honestly, if there's times that I say, man, I wish Jesus wouldn't have said these passages. I wish you wouldn't have spoken these words because the hard part of our world is that we live in this fast-paced digital world that 
is so different than 2,000 years ago when Jesus called his first disciples. We're overworked, we're overspent, we're overscheduled, we're overanxious. And so the question we're going to ask is, in this type of world, how do we live as true disciples? Our culture, in Western American culture, and even our church culture, in cultural Christianity, is a mile wide and an inch deep. And so what I want to look at today is how can we find a more fulfilling a much more meaningful relationship with Jesus. How do we continue to change to be the disciples that all of us, if you're hearing my voice, all of us have been called to be disciples. So we're going to begin where we're going to try to end this series in a few weeks with this call of discipleship. And today it starts in Luke chapter 9. Let's hear those words of Jesus. Tough words, but such powerful words. Luke 9, 18 to 25, once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? This is the center uh, conversation that Jesus ever has with his disciples. It's the center point of the, bar, of the gospel of Mark. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others the one of the prophets of long ago who's come back to life. But Jesus then turns it to him, but what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, God's Messiah, God's anointed, God's king. That's what that means. And Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So Jesus, in response to Peter's answer, you're the king. He goes, guess what kind of king I'm going to be? I'm going to be a rejected, despised, bloody, life-giving king quite a campaign strategy and then the passage ends with this then he said to them all because they're being shocked this is the first time the disciples have heard this type of phrasing that the king is going to be a suffering servant and he says to them all whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves take up their cross daily and follow me for whoever wants to save their life will lose it but whoever loses their life for me will save it What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their very self or forfeit their very soul? Verse 23 is where we're going to sit for a little bit. That Greek word, mathetaeus, or this disciple, that's that word for apprentice, a follower that we've been looking at. And this question that every one of us, when we look at this passage, has to be asked. And I think all of us, if we were to be asked, as we've said before, are you a disciple? We would give a hearty yes. But according to Jesus, this is what he does in Luke 9. This is where this stuff gets hard. It's where we go, man, Jesus, you are bringing it today. You're bringing the heat. You're stepping on toes. You're stepping on hearts, however you want to say it. But what Jesus says here is that the hallmark of a disciple's life is self-denial. The one shining thing that comes out of a Christian, he says, should be selflessness. Because at the center of discipleship is what? It's the cross. The center symbol of Christianity is the cross. And I know that today we are numb and desensitized to that. Crucifixion to us, the cross as a symbol of to us is tame, it's been domesticated, it's a symbol that we put on fashion or that we put on a shirt, but in the ancient world 2,000 years ago, this would have been a bomb dropped in the middle of the conversation. 
Who do you say I am? Well, I'm the Messiah. Yeah, I'm the Messiah, and I'm the one who's going to die, and I'm going to do it, and you've got to carry a cross if you want to follow me. 2,000 years ago, the cross was the ultimate expression of pain and shame and suffering. Rome used crucifixion, not as some private thing reserved behind walls that nobody wanted to see or, or that would be, it's a little too sensitive. They used it as a public mocking of anybody that got in their way. You were crucified naked. Jesus wasn't, as we appear him, in, in, in wearing a loincloth. He was naked on the cross. He was ashamed on the cross. You were nailed to a stake or a tree or a cross, whatever could be found. The crucified were ridiculed as a constant reminder that this is what happens to somebody who rises up against the power and authority of empire, of Rome. Now, ancient Israel, you need to understand, this would have been even more shocking for them. They were a culture built on honor and shame. Your, your goal was to, to build honor to the father of your household. It was to have a good reputation. You built your whole life and family around that. So the cross was this place of ultimate shame. Roman citizens couldn't even be crucified. It was illegal for Roman soldiers to crucify Roman citizens. So the cross and crucifixion as a means of punishment and death and the death penalty was reserved for the lowly and the least and the most despised, the foreigner, the criminal, the insurrectionist, the outcast. It's such a brutal teaching, and I won't get into all of it. I won't make this a Mel Gibson film, but I will tell you this. It was such a brutal thing that I think and I think scholars are right on this, that they wonder why do the gospel writers give so little detail? And that's because it was so brutal. And it was so shameful that they said all they can bring themselves to say, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all they can bring themselves to say is he was crucified. Because the readers would have known how awful it was. Maybe the only way we could ever even imagine this or, or compare or parallel the cross to something today would be as if a powerful nation on live TV dragged Jesus out or even just a person people respect and beheaded them on live TV or on our devices or on Facebook Live and everybody saw it. It would be barbaric. It would be awful. It'd be the worst of humanity on display. Horrible. That was the cross. That was crucifixion. And I remind us of this, not just to be grotesque or to share with you the inhumane nature of it against a fellow human. I remind us of this because we need to hear this passage in Luke 9 for what it is, that the cross is the center symbol of Christianity. It's not just some cute logo to slap on a church sign. It is a symbol because the invitation of Jesus is this. If you really want to live, then you must be willing to die. He drops that bomb right in the middle of the disciples' lives. Bonhoeffer said it so well, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says this in his famous book, The Cost of Discipleship. He says, and he was of course killed for his belief in Jesus and his followership of Jesus, being a disciple. But he said, when a man... Uh, call, when God or Christ calls a man, sorry, butchering this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. And of course, many followers of Jesus have, have done that. 
They followed him straight to death. For 2,000 years, that's been happening. The writers of your New Testament knew that denial of self up to death was as far, you would take it to the furthest degree if you were going to be a disciple. It was understood in very real terms. James was beheaded by Herod. He's the first apostle, James the Less, to be killed in the name of Jesus. That's in the book of Acts. Peter, according to tradition, is crucified upside down in Rome. Paul is beheaded in Rome as well. John, the apostle, according to tradition, is boiled in oil and then left on a rock to die. Matthew, the gospel writer, was killed by the sword. And our author of Luke, chapter 9, that we're reading today, was hung by a rope in Greece. That was the reality of early Christians, and it remains the reality that when Christ calls a person to self-denial, it may even mean death. Up till today, there's still thousands of Christians every year killed for the name of Jesus. Thankfully, that's not our reality, is it? But that does not diminish, no matter how thankful we are that it's not our reality, it does not diminish the teaching of Jesus here in Luke 9. It's just as powerful. To carry a cross may not bring us literal death, but Jesus' teaching is still as powerful because what it means is it will bring you a metaphorical death because to be my disciple, Jesus says, you've got to live a life of self-denial. The call of living the way of Jesus is always and will always be one of self-denial, a non-optional way of life. And that's tough, isn't it? Because we're selfish. And I'll cut the tension here and tell you how selfish I am. <laughs> so I've been in band when I was fourth grade, and I decided to, that I tried out for trumpet, but I wasn't good enough at trumpet, so I ended up playing the trombone. And so did my best friend Levi. And so from fourth grade through eighth grade, we sat beside each other, usually in fourth or fifth chair, because we were never in first, second, or third chair, and we both played the trombone. Our parents had purchased for us a $400 plus trombone. We didn't have a a school like we do here where the, where the instruments are given to you. You had to purchase your own. And so I would have my trombone next to Levi through fourth grade, which it was pretty and it was nice. In fifth grade, we still did pretty good with it and kept care of it. But by sixth grade, something had happened called puberty, and we were a little bit uh, obnoxious with each other. So if his trombone was sitting next to me and, and the end of it, the tuner part of the slide was next to me, I'd lean over and I'd bite and put a little dent in the end of his trombone. Or he'd bite my trombone. And then by seventh grade, we got to where punching each other's bell on our trombone to put a dent in it was pretty fun. It was pretty fun. So I got out of band in eighth grade. And so my ninth grade year, my mom was like, we've got to get rid of that trombone. It's been up at the, it's been up at the uh, band hall for a whole year. And I said, yeah, we do. And so we went up there, and I was like, God, my mom hasn't seen this trombone in years, and it looks awful. And so I'm starting to sweat because I know what's coming. Hey, Mom, you know this story. She knows this. Vanda, she's online with us. She knows this. I, have, I confessed this years ago to her what I'm about to tell you. So we got up there, and she's like, all right, let's find your trombone. Well, there, we get into this room where all the extra instruments were set, and there was two exact trombone cases sitting there, both black Yamaha cases. And so I'm like, I don't know which one it is. I haven't seen this in over a year. I open up one. As soon as I saw it, I knew whose was it. Well, it was. It was beat up. It had teeth marks all in the end of it. It had punch marks on it. 
And then I opened up the other one, and it had some marks on it, some dents, and it was, but it was, it was significantly better than the one I knew was mine. And I'm about to say, I'm on the cusp of going, you know, Mom, this one's mine, and starting my whole sorry speech, and I'm a terrible person, and you've raised the worst kid in the world. You know, whatever I was going to say. And then she, she speaks up right before I say, and she's standing over there, and she goes, that one better not be yours, or you're dead. <laughs> and in that moment of selfishness, I took Kyle Honeman's <laughs> trombone, and I sold it for $200. <laughs> Oh, one of my worst moments. Now, that all came out, and I made it right with Kyle Honeman. He thought it was hilarious because, of course, his mom paid for the trombone, not him. But I took somebody else's trombone and sold it. It was awful. That's how selfish we are, right? Oh, that was bad. feels good to get that off my chest to you guys. But that's the problem, right? Now, we cut some with levity here into the passage, but... The question comes down to us, how do we live lives of self-denial in a world of self-fulfillment and entitlement, right? Where we have choices, right? Our God, just like in that moment in the band hall, is a God of little g, God, you guys that are reading along with our life group study, is the God of options, right? We live in this world of self-fulfillment. What we want, what we can't miss out on, what I have to have, what must I go do. We even have a word, a term for that, FOMO, fear of missing out. What a world to live in, right? The God of options is so much in front of us that self-denial is usually our last thought. We have so many options that we even have a name for our anxiety of missing out on what we consider the best option, FOMO. Our world is a constant barrage of limitless options of what I can get to make my life the best. So self-denial is almost unknown to our culture. We have so many options from our morning drink to how we schedule our day to what we do, even on what we call the Lord's Day. And what we do in this world of self-fulfillment is we miss out that every piece of wisdom we can find from this that there's wisdom in knowing that every yes is a no every yes to something is a no to something else and so I want to look just real quick and in practical terms at how do we live this out what Jesus calls us to in Luke chapter 9 how do we carry a cross in a world where we're carrying so much else how do we practice denial Self-denial, self-sacrifice in a world of self-entitlement, self-fulfillment. See, my trombone story was me just trying to get away with something, thinking about nobody else but me. And it's humorous because it was so many years ago. But if my kids did it, I'd kill them. <laughs> so I want to begin here. To be disciples of Jesus, it begins with a life of self-denial that says whatever Jesus says to do, we will do. We'll do it. So I read years ago about this. I'm going to give you this example. Years ago, in um, a book I was reading, it talked about the Knights Templar. And the Knights Templar, if you guys know who they are, were these guys 
who uh, were crusaded, right? The crusades uh, and, and fought against uh, Muslim kingdoms and stuff around Jerusalem in order to take Jerusalem back. It's awful Christian history, terrible things. But the Knights Templar loved the cross as a symbol on their bodies. They put it on their shield. But there's a story about when somebody came to be a Knights Templar, they would be baptized into Christ in the name of Jesus. And when they get baptized, they would go into the water, but they would always hold up their right arm with their sword up. So they'd go back, I'm going to do this, and they'd come back up with that right arm up. Why? Because they were saying, in essence, I'm giving some of my life to Jesus, but not the one that gets to kill people. Not the one that gets to slay Muslims. And when I read that story, I thought, man, how ridiculous, right? But I was reflecting on that this week, and I thought, I'm going to get out of here in a minute. But you can tell, it's not full, by the way, if you're wondering. All right. But I thought, how ridiculous. Then the more I reflected on it, I thought, well, maybe how honest. Because we may look at that and go, well, that's crazy, but yet, when we come to Christ in baptism, don't we often have parts of our life we're not willing to give him? Maybe we're just more hypocritical. So Jesus asks us, he says, are you going to follow me? You're going to pick up your cross. Whatever Jesus says to do, we will do. So what if we practiced honest baptisms here? You'll just do that thought experience, experiment with me. What would we do? Maybe we would go get baptized with our, with our phone out of the water. Like, you're not taking my Facebook, you know, or whatever. Or maybe some of us, it might be that I, I, get, I get baptized with a picture of my girlfriend or boyfriend that I'm cohabitating with, and I'm going to be like, nope, we're not doing this, right? You know, or maybe, maybe for some of us, it might be that we get baptized with our gun in our hand, or we, we get baptized um, with our sports schedule in our hand, or our football, or our basketball, or what our kids do, and we go, no, you can't have that. See, what that illustrates the Knights Templar do for us is that we are often a people who just aren't honest about what we give Jesus. But this call in Luke 9 is that whatever he says to do, we'll do. Cross-carrying disciples respond with a resounding yes to when Jesus says whatever. We say, yeah, whatever, whatever you ask. This is pretty clear in Luke 18 that this is what's going on with this story with what we call the rich young ruler. Luke just calls him a certain ruler. He calls him rich later. A certain ruler asks Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I've kept since I was a boy, the man said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the man heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Now, this story is one of those to me, and, it, I, and I hope it is to you too, that just is over and over again convicting and powerful. And I think the reason it's over and over again convicting and powerful because it not only is a story that happened, it is a story that happens. That we all have been this guy. And I don't believe the point of the story is that Jesus is telling everybody to sell everything they have and give it to the poor. I don't think that's what it is. I think the point of the story is that's what he asked of that guy. And what we're supposed to hear in the story is if that guy 
if that was that man's calling, what is mine? Because we all have a calling. We all have something. It may not be that Jesus is asking you to sell everything, but he is asking you to do something. And the question is, whatever Jesus asks you to do, will you be willing to give it up, to do it, to follow him? That's the call of discipleship. And the second one is not only the whatever he says to do will do, the second thing I want to give to you all today is to deny ourselves, to live a life of cross-carrying means that whenever Jesus tells us to go, we will not hesitate. Let's go back to our passage we started with, Luke 9, 23. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross. What? Say it with me. Daily, right? And follow me. Daily. This story is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But Luke is the only one to throw in daily. Because he's trying to remind us something. He throws that word in. He's saying the way of Jesus is not one and done. It's not checked my box, got wet, went under the water as a teen. It's not a religion. Religion is something you do when you want. It's a movement. It's a way of life. It's an ongoing, ever-increasing, transformative life that happens daily. Daily sacrifice. Daily giving up my ways. Daily being available to where I'm at with God so that I can continue to grow in God. And those things that we do to self-deny whenever Jesus calls work from the simple, like letting somebody go first in line at Lowe's next time you're there, or Walmart, at the store. That's simple thing. Simple things like being patient. It's simple things like when your little kids come to you and go, let's play Monopoly, and you're like, oh, it takes 12 hours. But because they want to, you go, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm going to self-deny. I'm going to play Monopoly, the worst board game in the history of the world, right? That's what you do. It's simple like that. Or it's simple like turning off the TV or going to support someone or making that extra phone call or text of love and prayer. But it's also as difficult and it ranges from all over the place. If we're going to be whenever Christians, it means I'm also up to giving sacrificially when, whenever God calls. It means I'm willing to open up my home whenever there's a chance for me to serve somebody else and be hospitable. It means whenever there's a big thing in my life, I'm going to say yes. Whether that is death to myself, praying for an enemy, loving my enemy, going the extra mile, whatever it is. It ranges from the simple to the profound. It's all that and more. But most of all, and this is where we need to sit, it's daily. Most of all, it's daily. And what most of us miss is that we don't see the opportunities God gives us for self-denial because we don't daily open our eyes to them. We did Sunday, we checked a box, good enough but it's daily but this call of disciple is not a discipleship it's whatever asks jesus asks us to do it's not only whenever but it's finally it's wherever too whatever whenever and wherever to deny ourselves means that wherever jesus says to go we will go later on in chapter nine here's what happens it was really good this is one of those passages, too, that just kind of guts you a little bit. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. 
And Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In other words, he goes, man, I would love for you to follow me, but you got to know I'm a homeless, wandering rabbi. And then the next phrase, next little line. Then he said to another man, so Jesus reverses it, and he calls this guy. He says to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. That's a tough passage because it sounds like Jesus is like, yeah, get over your grief. But that's not what's going on. In fact, what's going on is most New Testament scholars agree that this is not what it sounds like. This, this phrase is actually used in ancient Jewish literature of bury your own dead or let me go and bury my father as a euphemism for this man's saying to Jesus, yeah, I'd love to follow you, but let me make sure my parents' house is in order first. Let me go take care of things. My parents are retired. They're going to eventually die. Once, they're, once, they're kinda, once things kind of get settled, once I'm ready, once I've kind of got my ducks in a row, then I'll come follow you. Which is actually, in a weird way, more powerful than the, than the more harsh way, isn't it? Right? Anybody with me? It's more powerful because what he's saying is don't hesitate. Don't hesitate. Jesus is calling you wherever. He's calling you right now on a Sunday morning. Don't hesitate. Jesus is not being insensitive. He's being honest here. His call is wherever you can go, wherever you are, pick up your cross. I love it. Jesus is the responsible for the worst PR campaign in church history. <laughs> right? You want to shrink a church, right? Here's how you, this is what you need to talk about every week, right? I'm going to write a book, How to Kill a Church in Three Sermons, and it's going to focus on the three sayings here in Luke chapter 9. It's a real good way to shrink it. But I love that because Jesus is just simply honest. He doesn't do a sales pitch. He doesn't do a celebrity endorsement. He's not interested in hiring a PR firm. He's just honest. And the reason he's so honest is because he knows our hearts. Because here's the issue with this man. The problem with the man who's dragging his feet is not that he doesn't have faith in Jesus. It's not that he doesn't have a belief in Jesus. What he's lacking is commitment to Jesus. That's why it's so powerful. And Jesus isn't interested in having believers. He's interested in having followers, disciples. So our call as disciples of Jesus, a life of self-denial will be defined by whatever, whenever, and wherever. Because the surest path, the surest path to living like Jesus. You want to live like Jesus? Uh, I got a fast-forward way to do it. Now, it's not really going to be that fast-forward. But the fast-forward way, faster than most, is self-deny, self-deny, self-deny. Sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. You want to be like Jesus? Give yourself up daily. And you will start to be transformed in a way when you practice that. And it can be practiced. This can be learned because what's on the other side of self-denial is more joy and fulfillment than we can ever imagine. I'm going to shift this thinking. I know you're today going, man, Jake, you are picking on us. And that, yes, I am, and I'm picking on myself. I am selfish embarrassingly so but I know this and this is true for all of us 
we can change and we can be transformed. And the surest path of that transformation is self-denial. Whatever, whenever, wherever Jesus calls us. Because if I want to be patient, if we want to be patient, God ain't just going to give you patience, amen? If I want to be patient, if you want to be patient, you have to be learned, you have to be willing to learn to wait. If I want to be a kind person, I have to learn to open my life up to people who wear me out. I do. We laugh at that, but it's true. You want to be a kind person, start start purposely spending time with people who annoy you. That's right. Brad, you want to go to dinner later? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> right? No, I, I, I'm honest about that. That's true. If I want to be kind, I've got to be around people who I don't get along with. If I want to be humble, I better be willing to be humiliated. If I want to be mature, I better be okay with suffering. If I want to be prayerful, I've got to learn to sacrifice so God can have space. If I want to be a part of a growing, reaching church, I have to do my part. If I want a better youth group, I better lead. If I want to be compassionate, I better learn empathy and give space to other people's experience and needs. If I want to be generous, I have to give up my desire for security at every turn. And if I want the life of Jesus, I better pick up a cross and follow him. Now I know this is heavy, but I want to be very clear, and if you haven't listened to anything in the last 10, 15 minutes, if I lost you after I got out of the Baptist, you're like, well, that was fun. I'm out. I get it. Come back for a second. I can go in there again if it gets your attention. But I want you to hear me. If this morning you're going, man, I'm feeling really guilty. If you're feeling guilt or shame from these passages or what, these words that I believe God has put on my heart to share this morning, I want you to know that is not from God. If you're feeling guilt and shame this morning, you are listening to the wrong voice. But if you're feeling conviction this morning, God's got you right where he wants. God does not work in guilt. He works in conviction. So please hear me. Because I believe this 100%, and I'm going to put a smile on my face and say this. The way of the cross of Jesus is not bad news, church. It is good news. We as Christians are willing to die a thousand small deaths so that we can live one incredible life. A life that makes a difference, that goes from here and into eternity, and it brings others with us, that says we will invest $8,000 more in EEM. You know what that, what that comes out to? There's $18,000 we will send in a check tomorrow morning to EEM. That's 15,000 new Bibles that somebody who's never seen the Bible will get to see. And that's an easy sacrifice, right? It's an incredible life. It's absolutely good. My favorite parable of Jesus is one verse where he illustrates this, that it is a good news thing. Matthew 13, 
44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and gave it all up, whatever, whenever, wherever, and he bought that field. Did he sacrifice? Here's the question. Did he have to make a sacrifice, yes or no? Yeah, but not really. That's the way of the kingdom. Self-denial, the way of the cross, is our way of joining Jesus in saying, I believe that the cross is the centerpiece of the world and it changed everything. So when I self-deny, I join Jesus in his self-denial of not my will, but yours, Father, and it changes the world, right? So we sacrifice. The question for us, the life for us, the thing in front of us is that when we die to self, we know that we receive so much more in return. Any Christians out there with me today? When we sacrifice, the blessings of Jesus are far greater than anything we ever give up, just like this guy. So a few weeks ago, Monty Tuttle was with us. And I'll wrap up with this. I know I've gone longer. We started late. Blame it on us starting late. Jake's sermon wasn't long. We started late. Yeah. Right? Right. I had to throw the trombone story out. But Monty Tuttle was with us a, few day, uh, a couple weeks ago from EEM. And he told this story, not, not to everybody, but told this story to a few of us about a, about a young lady who was making her way to Europe from Iran. And her and her husband and their little girl were Muslim. And as they were trying to get on the boat to get across the Mediterranean so that they could become immigrants in, in, I think, in Greece. Is that right, Shane? It was Greece. Yeah, they were trying to get to Greece. They were about to get on the boat. And for some reason, they had paid for everything. Everything was in order. For some reason, the authorities came and they arrested her husband. So in that moment, she's getting on the boat, and all of a sudden her husband is getting dragged away back to Iran. And he's getting uh, dragged away. She's got this choice. Do I stay on the boat, or do I get off and continue to live this tough life that I'm living here, or do I go to something new and hopeful? Well, she stays on the boat, her and her daughter, and they get across the Mediterranean, and when they get to Greece, they're just soaking wet. They've been on this boat. It's not an easy uh, to traverse that. It's tough. It's, it's a wild few hours getting across it. They're soaking wet, and she's wearing a Muslim burqa, the, you know, the thing that covers head to toe. She gets out of the boat and gets onto the beach wearing this burqa, and the first people that she meets is this Christian woman. And this Christian woman grabs her, and she has no idea where they're going, no, no idea what's going on. She speaks Farsi. They're trying to get Farsi across to her, and they take her into a tent. It's a warming tent. She's freezing cold. They take her and her little daughter in there, and they're in that tent, provided by Christians, is a hanger full of dry burkas. Clothesline full of burkas. They give her a dry burka. Give her a meal. Warm her up. 
and then give her an EEM Bible as she walks out of the tent. Uh, out of the tent. It's in Farsi. In two or three months, she reads it four times from start to finish. It changes her life. She becomes a Christian. She starts to follow Jesus in a life of self-denial because somebody self-denied for her. She, finally, her husband gets over there. She introduces him to the text. He becomes a Christian. Now, months later, they have gone back to Iran to be part of the underground church to change the country. But that all starts. Why? Because somebody said, I'm going to meet people where they are and I'll self-deny first. Some of you in here probably go, I would never buy a burqa for an Islam, somebody, a Muslim person. I don't like them. You don't understand the way of Jesus. Jesus meets us where we are. We meet people where they are because we're willing to know this. The church is at its best when we give ourselves away. That doesn't happen unless somebody goes, you know what, I'm going to give myself away. I'm going to sit on the shores of Greece and wait for people to come across every day. I'm going to buy things that I never thought I'd buy as a Christian. Islamic garb. Because I want people to see that Christians love them. Self-denial. It changes the world. So this morning, I want you to just simply do this. Ask God. That, again, if you're feeling guilty or shameful this morning, that is not my intent, not my prayer. And, if, and, I, and I believe 100% that's not the, the heart of God. But if you're feeling conviction this morning, I want you to ask God one thing. God, what is my next step? Not what is my hundredth step. What is my next step? So that I can give you whatever you ask, whenever you ask, and wherever you'll send me. I want you to ask that this morning as we sing our invitation. And if you need anything, we're here for you. We'll spend the extra 20 minutes to fill that baptistry up. I usually fill it up, but I didn't want to get into it this morning. We're thankful you're here. Let's be a church that gives ourselves away. Let's stand and sing together.